Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Thursday, August 26, 2010, and we're sure glad you've joined us. And George Siemens is with us tonight. Welcome, George. Hey, Steve. Great to be here. Thanks for the invite. Really appreciate your taking the time tonight. Future of Education is sponsored by my employer, Illuminate. And the project I work on for Illuminate is called Learn Central. It's a social network for educators that is free and has Illuminate baked in. We hope you'll come and take advantage of the platform. The call for presentations for the Global Education Conference is live. George, I'm getting a little feedback from your mic. If you wouldn't mind turning off when you're not speaking, that's terrific. Thank you. Uh, if you go to globaleducationconference.com, we have a, a submission form, and you can either submit to present or just to be kept aware of what's going to take place. It's five days in November, uh, multiple time zones, multiple languages, multiple tracks. This is a huge community effort to pull this off, and uh, it should be, it will be imperfect, but it will be a lot of darn fun. Coming up on the future of education, next week, Vicki Abelli's on Monday. We'll talk about her movie, The Race to Nowhere. And then because of a work project that's come up for me, I'm rescheduling the rest of the interviews for that week, and they'll have to take place later. Uh, Charles Fidel in September, Clarence Fisher, Paul Peterson, Ben Daly. We'll get back to Craig Watkin, Charlene Lee, and Rob Darrow, uh, hopefully in October. Anyway, lots of fun coming up still. We hope you'll join us for some of those. If you've missed the session, all the recordings are up on futureofeducation.com where there's a link through, click through to the full Illuminate recording. Uh, yesterday's uh, interview with the unique BYU-Idaho learning model, Kathleen Cushman on her wonderful project with students called Fires in the Mind. Before that, Amber Matt talked about power friending, a voice not in the education sector, but well worth hearing. Carol Dweck and Linda Darling Hammond. We've had a lot of fun recently, and if you've missed the session and something there appeals to you, please know those recordings are all up. If this is your first time in Illuminate, we hope that you will participate actively. Uh, there are some easy ways to do that. At the bottom of your participant window, you'll see some emoticons that let you clap or smile or give a confused look or a thumbs down. Um, hopefully, mostly clapping and smiling. There's a hand with a green up arrow. That lets you raise your hand if you want to ask a question using the mic. We recommend that before you do that, you actually go up to Tools, Set Up, and run the Audio Setup Wizard to make sure your mic is working if this is your first time in Illuminate. Just have to configure it. And uh, there's nothing worse than having you turn your mic on and no sound come through. I recommend going up to View Layouts right now, everybody, and switch to the Wide Layout. It's much easier to see the chat, especially in a group of this size. So uh, View Layouts and then the Wide Layout. And I'm going to give you a chance now to indicate on the map where you're participating from. Look for the laser pointer to the left of the map. It's the wand with the red star at the end. And click on that, and then click on the map. And it lets us know we've got India, Australia, lots of North America, Canada, Alaska. Feel free to shout out in the chat where you're listening from time and temperature. It's a cool 96 in Sacramento today. Having been 106 yesterday, we consider it cool. And we're supposed to get down in the 70s this weekend, which is a big temperature swing for us. Somebody's written on the board here. Glad to know somebody from Eastern Seaboard is large and visible. Okay, a lot of fun. 
Looks like Philippines again. A big star, I'm not quite sure where you are. Yeah, George is asking for the metric system when reporting temperatures. Okay, that was fun. We're good. Wherever you're listening from, we're glad to have you here. If you're listening to the recording, uh, we appreciate that you're doing so and hope that you enjoy the session. So George, I'm interested in how little I've known of your work, other than the sort of nagging guilt that I've had that I should know more. I just haven't run into you. I don't think we've even actually ever met. Uh, is that because you're in the higher ed world, or have I just had my head in the sand? Uh, you know, I have uh, no idea. Um, it might partly be due to higher education. It might be due to that you keep better companies. So I'm not quite sure what the issue is. I think it's the opposite of that. Reading you was like finding an old friend, a more intelligent, articulate old friend. Um, so I'm really glad you're here. And I'm hoping that you will kind of help today to, to give us the short course in George Siemens. Uh, and I'm hoping that for two reasons. One of which is I hope the recording serves as an introduction to your work to other people like me who may not have uh, spent the time that we would have liked on it. And the second is that because of this work project that's come up for me, I haven't been able to do my normal amount of pre-reading. I did spend a couple of hours with you today virtually by, by reading some work that you've done and, and really loved it. But uh, you're going to have to help me by kind of giving us a sense of the, the work that you've done and the, and the topics that are of most interest to you right now. So could we start with connectivism? Sure. Uh, that's as uh, good a point as any to start. Uh, I'm not sure if you have specific questions or if you just want me to jump in and ramble about it for a while, but I'll let you uh, drive the, the path that we take. Okay, so why don't you just describe what connectivism is? and um, give us a sense of, of how it's distinguished from other, um, uh, I'm not even sure I know the right word here, but other systems of thought around teaching and learning? Sure. Well, I'll actually provide a little bit of a, I'll step back a little bit further and, and give you a sense of the context in which the original article came out. Um, at the time, I was at uh, Red River College, which is uh, the higher education system in Winnipeg, Manitoba. And uh, it was in early 2000, I started playing around with uh, blogs at that time and trying to, we were, we thought at least, and I still lay claim to it, that we were the first uh, university in, or the, the higher education system in Canada to go exclusively laptop, which meant in the late 90s, every student in our program received a laptop. But the difficulty was most educators didn't change much of their teaching routine. It, it was more like, you know, the laptop with a new color of chalk. You know, everything still was the way it was and, and things didn't change. Uh, but I started playing around with blogs and I started getting the sense that uh, there was, in the Red River system, there weren't a lot of individuals terribly interesting or terribly interested in uh, using educational technology. And maybe it was because there wasn't a very defined field of inquiry around it at that time. But I found social media, which later it's been called that, or it was called Web 2.0 for a while. But I found that that really changed how I would relate to students. And I had this sense of, you know, I would connect, I would post something on my site, or I'd try and have a conversation at Red River, and there wouldn't be a lot of interest. But all of a sudden, you go on a blog, and you share your ideas, and you're connecting with educators from around the world. And I think that's where I, something 
twigged me and I had this sense of this is there's something different here and I couldn't quite place what it was and it took years actually of playing around with blogs and starting with wikis at that time and podcasts were just beginning uh, social network sites like Friendster were available already but I started to realize that my capacity to be intelligent so to speak was a function of how I was connected to other people and that the information that was flowing through the network was fairly consistent and it was fairly uh, you know, ongoing, but it, it changed, and it seemed to be changing more rapidly, the information. So it, it, it had this sense that there was this almost a meta level that provided some insight into what learning ought to be. Knowing that the information within the system changes quickly, it to me at least started to become apparent that the way in which I was connected to others and the very active, or the, the process of knowledge making itself was, was networked. And that's where I threw out this notion of connectivism and it came around a period of time where Stephen Downs and I had both been writing on similar topics. There was a fair bit of overlap and he actually followed up with an article shortly after that called Connective Knowledge which provided more of an epistemological basis. So to break it down quickly, connectivism is the assertion that knowledge is essentially networked and we grow, we learn by growing our networks. And it's not just, and quite often I hear this notion of, well, you know, you, you connect with someone on Facebook and now you have a learning network. And my view is, no, you don't. <laughs> you, know, you can connect that if you're interested, but there's much more involved. And my assertion with connectivism is that the process of education and the process of learning can best be understood, and for that matter, best be changed by understanding how connections form between people, between ideas, uh, between concepts. And so it's about bringing the process of learning down to this unit of control that an individual has uh, some level of uh, power in. So I think you also identify that there is knowledge in the network that may not be specifically residing in the individuals. Yeah, that, that's a core element of it because there are certain things that are prominent in different eras. I'm not at all suggesting that network learning is new because it isn't. You know, centuries, uh, thousands of years ago, the way guilds worked or the way parents would teach their children how to perform basic activities, the way a community would pass along its knowledge to the next generation, it was fundamentally networked. But I think what's different today is that the scope of the problems that we face have been substantially amplified. And what I mean by that is that the difficulty in solving some of the challenge that our society faces are an order of magnitude and complexity beyond what we perhaps faced 100 or even 1,000 years ago. So when you deal with something like SARS, for example, in 2003, it wasn't something that was found or discovered or the answer to it wasn't discovered by an individual. It was a group of researchers passing off data literally at the close of shop to the next research center internationally to address this. The same way H1N1 was identified or the virus behind it was identified was this process of, of literally a global brain that, you know, when one part of the world goes to sleep, the next part is waking up and picks up the problem and the innovations that have been created since. So our era, which is, I think, defined by numerous things, but a few in particular is the nature of complexity, the types of problems that we're facing, and the solution to those problems require a distributed 
approach. They simply cannot be addressed by individuals because they're too complex to be comprehended by one person. So that kind of presumes that the complexity of the problem is driving the process. But I would almost have thought that it was the other way around, that the tools and the ability to connect are allowing us to attack larger problems than we ever could have before. Well, I mean, to some degree that's the case, but, you know, and it's very much a, you know, it's more of a dance in terms of the process and the product. And so while on the one hand, you know, yes, social media has created additional information in society today, which requires that we place greater emphasis on how we're going to manage that, which means we need to rely on tools that permit distributed cognition and distributed intelligence, which in turn only creates more information, which, you know, once again, you start getting the cycle going. The difficulty there, and, and this is a reality, and, and this is why I think every educator should read Jacques Ellul at minimum, uh, because he has some critical views on technology and the technical process, but at the end of the day, Technology creates problems that only technology can solve. And what I mean by that, quite basically, is that the improvements in health that permitted humanity to live longer, so that our average life expectancy now is dramatically greater than what it was even you know, two or three generations ago, today we face, uh, because of that increase in lifespan, we have problems around uh, uh, you know, overpopulation, and because we have overpopulation uh, or growth of population, we've tried to make better use and better efficiency of the resources that are on in the world, which means better mining techniques, which means we've grown as a population, we therefore require greater fossil fuels, and the list goes on. So there's this process whereby we create the problems that the next generation's technology is supposed to solve, and so in a lot of ways, we have that particular challenge facing us educationally, and I don't think and this is a, you know, an obvious statement to a group of educators, I don't think our education system is quite preparing students today with the mindset, not just the technologies, because the technologies in some level are, are secondary, but it's this mindset of learning how to work and think in a network that's so critical. So I've said this before on the show, but my brother is a professor at University of California, Davis, and one of his big gripes is that the tenure system there doesn't really give him any um, credit or value for the collaborative work he does. It's just looking for individual work. Are, do you, have you experienced that as well in the institutions you've been associated with? True. I mean, we, we say that, but if you really stop and think about it, and I don't know the particular nature, uh, particular nature of your brother's work and publication, but I would guarantee that he has done some level of collaboration that he might not see as necessarily being collaborative. Uh, you know, for example, you know, he would do his literature reviews, he would co-author papers with others, he would meet with individuals at a conference. So while they might not value that process of the experience here, uh, namely the emphasis on uh, working together collaboratively, that might not be reflected in tenure application, but the byproduct of being that is very much influenced at tenure application, namely citations, the quality of his work, and those kinds of things. Well stated. So there was an Alzheimer's study that came out a couple of weeks ago in which they uh, mentioned the fact that they had been able to really fast track the research and uh, collaborate together because they kind of broke down some of the barriers that traditionally existed around uh, holding data. Um, as we see some of these barriers come down for very practical reasons, do we see a shift in power as well? 
Well, power is a, a fickle thing. I mean, you know, power means one thing in one generation, and it can mean something quite another in another generation. So uh, I'll just sort of try and tease that apart a little bit. Uh, first of all, with regard to this notion of uh, the Alzheimer's study, and, and there's certainly many others like that that allow for improved quality of work and research academically, that has a dramatic impact on the pace at which problems can be solved. But it, and, and the emphasis, I think, especially with things like disease and uh, solving problems or solving uh, poverty or solving you know, whatever it is that we face as a society, one of the challenges is that we, a society naturally creates barriers and constraints that are intended to preserve itself. And these barriers and these constraints are particularly challenging in that they prevent creativity and innovation. So if you want the optimal capacity for innovation and creativity, you need the optimal amount of connectedness, for lack of a better term. So if we want to solve issues like Alzheimer's and if we want to address these problems, we have to be able to, to connect to a greater degree than we've perhaps been able to in the past. And um, the difficulty with that then relates to where's the power shift and who has control today. So if we connect in a different way, it does result in a control shift around information. But contrary to what people have said, information isn't power, and I don't even think knowledge is power. Um, I think integration is power. When you can take a viewpoint, I mean, the power of any political system is the way in which it's integrated throughout all of society, the school system, the university system, the business sector, and government, and that gives the system power. Communism or uh, capitalism, in all instances where they've been successful or thrived for a period of time, it's not because people have had knowledge about it, it's because people have been able to integrate it broadly across all sectors of society. So on the, we have right now with these social media tools that allow us to connect with each other and that allow us to collaboratively create information and exchange information, we have that, uh, this, the appearance of power, but until we manage to see those things better integrated into education systems, because we still hear of schools having internet connectivity uh, cut off or we hear of you know, certain devices banned in classrooms, and all of those can be practical, but we need to think about what does it say? And you know, are we as people in the emerging technologies field really operating under an appearance of power or is there actual substance underneath that that's influencing change in society as a whole? So that gives us a great place to drill down because what I've, what I've liked to think, what I've liked so far to think is that the use of these tools, um, social media, participative media, these kinds of events that we're holding, are allowing people to participate in discussions where they previously didn't feel empowered or a part of the larger dialogue. And we're certainly seeing with things like the EDUCON conference in Philadelphia that not only are educators kind of building their own professional development, but they're beginning to want to be very visible and vocal in the arena of policy. So is it, a, is it uh, when you say integration, is it the case that there needs to be a compelling story to allow that participation to be seen uh, broadly as valid. Uh, you know, in the case of educators playing a role in changing education, what needs to happen for that integration to take place? That's obviously uh, sector dependent, state dependent, uh, the, the nature of a province or, or whatever you're, you're addressing. But uh, what really needs to happen, I think, is that there is a pressing concern that this approach of education has to resolve. Uh, 
If we say, and I hear this frequently, you know, the education system is broken. And if that's an assertion, then my question is, well, you know, what, define to me clearly, what does your education system look like that will fix whatever has been broken? And so I think there's this, this sense in which we can spend a lot of time whining and complaining about what's wrong, and it's much more difficult to create a vision that's compelling and that motivates people to actually participate. Because ultimately, if you want individuals to pursue something or to be involved in a system, there has to be a sense of trust in place. So if you want to integrate, let's say, emergent technologies or if you want to integrate alternative pedagogies in the education process, your biggest challenge isn't of convincing people, it's of getting people to trust that the discussions that you're having have a reasonable intent and that they're going to actually address the problem. And part of the challenge with this is that educators sometimes have a different reality than let's say the parents do. Educators are likely are involved in ongoing professional development activities, they attend conferences, and for people who aren't part of education, they have trust with the system that they grew up in, which means they love the approach they had for being taught, for being lectured, for doing learning activities. Yes, they might have hated school and the list goes on, but at the end of the day, individuals feel that that's a system they can trust and have some faith in. So if you're suggesting whatever this view of education is that we have, and we might, some of us in the room will have dramatically different views, others much less so. If that's our assertion, then we have to be able to create a, a compelling message that's trusted by those people that we wish to influence with that message. And I don't think that's happening. I think there's often a sense of disdain. I often hear educators talk about, well, you know, they just don't get it. And, and to me, that's a very condescending statement. I mean, they don't get what? You know, what is this valuable insight that we've managed to acquire that hardworking, common sense, intelligent individuals in other sectors haven't? So I think, I think these are some of the challenges we face with integration is building a sufficient degree of trust that our view of learning is one that is going to prepare our school, our children, our society for a future that seems accessible to the individuals that we want to influence with that view. Okay, so I think I get that, and I and I really agree with it. And for me, I've couched that in the for you know the idea of compelling narratives that people have to kind of buy into the sense that this makes sense. But that doesn't that presuppose that you're trying to to turn a system, uh, it, turn the direction of a system, rather than this notion of uh, some kind of disruption that would. Um, replace an existing system? Well, I guess first of all, I, I, I should just put my views on the table, and that's that uh, I, I'm, uh, I don't, I'm not really sure if I'm too tied to the terms of the buzzwords, uh, you know, whether it's disruption or whether it's uh, evolution and that. I, I don't necessarily uh, have a particular opinion on, on which word I would prefer to use, but my view is very much that we have to look at our education system and ask a pretty basic question, which is, what is it that we can now do better with technology that we couldn't do a generation ago? That's the first critical question. And the second critical question is, what do humans have to do that technology will never be able to do, or at least certainly can't do yet? And where the education system has failed is the first one, is what does technology now do that humans don't need to do anymore? I would say anything to do with content broadcast. Uh, there's no need for a person to lecture, period. I mean, other than once. You know, lecture once unless the subject matter changes dramatically. Uh, but other than that, get your message out. 
uh, recorded broadcast that use open educational resources that are available in other systems, and uh, then utilize what exists in those spaces. But there's things that can never be done by technology, or at least we're so far away we can't envision it yet today. But that's the, the dynamics of learning. Uh, and we have to ask ourselves, what scales and what doesn't scale? Content generation scales. Content broadcast scales. One-on-one -on -one interaction with a student uh, where a student doesn't understand a concept or where a student needs additional guidance, you can't scale that yet until we have teaching robots. And then perhaps then we can scale it. But that's where I think we as an education system need to start looking at and saying, okay, what does this look like? And personally, I couldn't care if that means it's disruptive or if it's evolutionary or if it's, you know, radical or if it's whatever. I'm really secondarily view, my view on that is secondary to asking questions about, you know, how can we look at our system that takes advantage of the full breadth of resources that we have available today? And to really question what are the ideologies that still exist in classrooms that technology really has made obsolete? And what do we want to preserve that, uh, you know, techno-pundits and lovers of all things Web 2.0e and social media want to impact in the classroom? What do we need to preserve in that learning process that we need to ensure doesn't get lost as we begin to uh, change our content provision or interaction processes? So what do I, we can get into this later, but I do picture a dramatically different structure educationally within the next decade or two, but again, uh, the issue is about realigning what technology will do and what humans need to do. Okay, so I um, really appreciate your sort of putting your cards on the table there. And, and I'm intrigued by this because as much as I think we could create that vision and there would be different visions from everybody in this room, but maybe we could come to some close consensus in some areas, I have a really hard time imagining change taking place because of that vision. It's more like um, that the, um, that that at some level self-organization will take over and changes will occur at lower levels that will then morph and transform. And, and if that's true, and, and I'm welcoming your pushback here, if that's true, it almost feels to me like it's an uh, an effort in futility to describe another sort of top-down vision instead of actually creating the context for change to take place at lower levels. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, absolutely it does, and I'll happily push back a bit on that. So let's just have a quick little line here, and I'll ask anyone in the audience to, to uh, contribute here. So I've drawn a line on your screen. I'm not sure if they have access to the whiteboard. If they don't, uh, Steve, just let me know. And then, uh, uh, But anyway, so on this line, I'm going to call this the, uh, the policy line. And uh, basically what the policy line is, is it's this place whereby everything underneath it is the activities that we want individuals to do. These are grassroots activities. These are self-organizing learners. This is the kind of stuff that we see happening online all the time. But at a certain point, these individuals are completely unable to enact change. So what I mean by that is, Yes, you can say, oh, we should all run through Web 2.0 meadows holding hands and, uh, you know, chanting about how wonderful the future of education will be if the administrators would just get out of our way. But there's a policy line we hit because they're going to say, well, we're going to determine what kind of technologies you're going to have in your classroom. We're going to determine which provider or content provider you'll use, which textbook publisher will use. We're going to determine your salary. We're going to determine how many teachers in a classroom. We're going to determine whether you have an LMS in your class environment or whether you're going to emphasize more something around the line of personal learning environments and networks. 
so all of these things are uh, underneath, uh, well, there's a balance here. I mean, th there's these things that require senior admin and policy decisions, and then there are those things underneath that require uh, the, the, just the natural enthusiasm and passion of people. Now, I, I found in, in systems, at a certain level, the grassroots movement stalls because of uh, barriers and constraints that are put in place by the top-down version of the system, right, the senior admin. So there needs to be a way in which we have to decide what's our vision and, and you know, where within this policy line do we need to fall in order to achieve that particular vision that we have. Now, I'll, I will agree with you, though, Steve, that there are issues with pursuing this vision of, uh, you know, create a wonderful view of education tomorrow and people will follow. I mean, there are some restrictions to that. By the same account, I think there's enough people who, you know, if we want to convert the unwashed masses to our view of the world, there are enough people who are willing to engage in experiment that we don't need to start dealing with the hard converts yet, so to speak. Uh, we can, you know, simply through connecting with others and peers and that begin to make an influence at a, at a local level. But while we're doing that, it means that we need to keep an eye on the kinds of system we want to create so that we can translate our vision of change into something that's going to make sense to individuals uh, above this policy line. So I, I just, uh, the system as a whole, I don't think we do ourselves a favor by, by using um, you know, antagonistic terminology that creates the policymaker or the superintendent uh, or the VP academic as the enemy and that uh, has the people underneath the policy line, the academics and the teachers as the ones that are trying to read a, uh, lead a revolution. I think we can often find champions in administration just like we can find champions within uh, the teaching system that we're a part of as well. So uh, this is a really good conversation, and uh, I'm going to ask one more question, and then I think we can move on. So if we look at Web 2.0 companies as kind of the canaries in the coal mine, uh, companies whose business uh, structure now reflects the kind of dynamic impact that the users, customers, general community have, it seems as though rather than choosing necessarily a vision for their product, they're balancing the choice, they're balancing some form of vision and also a fair amount of creating an environment for their users to help them get somewhere. So I guess my question was, instead of focusing on the vision, does it make any sense to focus on creating the environment for the teachers to participate in the creation of the next generations of how we view education? Yeah, I wouldn't put those two as being antagonistic. Um, I would suggest that you, you would probably need a bit of both. But there's an interesting point that you raised just because you brought up Web 2.0 and it gives me a good horse to flog because, well, <laughs> everybody needs a horse to flog. Uh, it's important to emphasize that there are certain things around Web 2.0 that, uh, you know, the business structure is intriguing, this iterate and, you know, multiple changes are intriguing. But it's also worth knowing what are we smuggling in through the back door because the early internet, uh, the web, if you will, that uh, I'd like to, uh, you know, that I remember as being fairly influential for me at least. I'm not a, a, a programmer, but uh, I, I like the capacity of choice and freedom that came with uh, running a piece of software that perhaps I had to host and maybe I, if I couldn't tweak what I wanted tweak, then I would have to pay someone to help me address that problem. But there was a sense of control that existed there. But in 
the Web 2.0 world, that sense of control is largely abandoned. And we've exchanged this notion of free, as in software and control, for free, as in monetary freedom. You know, there's no fee for using their services. And you can get burned. You know, Google drops out Google Notes, and well, now you're, for lack of a better word, screwed. Uh, or another a company that you're heavily uh, invested in in terms of your content and your resources decides to uh, fold or get merged with someone, and Google, you know, is now mini Microsoft in terms of their attitude, namely, you know, merge and close down and integrate with existing platforms, which sounds a lot like we used to have with uh, with Microsoft. And uh, Chris just mentioned this example of Ning. That's a challenge that we face. So this is the issue where change is going to be very difficult because leaders, uh, politicians, aren't going to trust this notion of uh, the system of Web 2.0 companies that, that we're perhaps trying to say we'd like to see more of in education, I think is desirable, but it's the ideology that exists underneath it that we have to ask ourselves. So is multiple iterations and community involvement and crowdsourcing and so on, is that important? Uh, absolutely, but that's not exclusive to Web 2.0, but it's this notion of locking in ideologies and locking people within a system. Again, I, I want to return to the system that enables the greatest degree of connections to form is the system that I'll almost always view as being most preferable. So I love that uh, interpretation, and um, I interviewed Sam Chaltrain uh, a few weeks back, and we talked about uh, sort of democracy being the middle ground between anarchy and tyranny. And if you think of uh, companies gaining a lot of power, becoming naturally sort of tyrannical, and, and anarchy being no control, no structure, then the middle ground, both politically and economically, seems to provide for that very thing you're saying, which is the, the greatest freedom and ability to make connections but within a valuable structure. So that, I appreciate that, and I hope that that's uh, sort of on target with what you said. Absolutely, and, and again, it gets back to where do we actually have control as individuals, uh, especially when we talk, and I, I did a talk at TEDx in I, I, uh, New York, and I don't think it quite came across the way I wanted to, um, but my emphasis there was that we need to start thinking in connections, not in networks, because sometimes we think in systems that are too big where we don't have control. So if someone starts to say, well, this is my personal learning network, and a network seems so big, and uh, if we could just reduce the, you know, the, the, the connections where we have control, you know, the connections that we form with people, the connections that we form with, uh, with others, the connections that we form with information, uh, you know, that's where we actually have a point of control. So that, you know, hence my emphasis on a, a, a focus that uh, produces connectedness and maximal opportunity for connectedness. So there's some chat going on, and I'm not sure I've caught the full gist of it, but I'm, I'm going to riff on it, and we'll see if we go close. Uh, I interviewed Linda Darling-Hammond last week, and she didn't mention technology at all. And Will Richardson posted a blog post about that interview and mentioned the fact that she hadn't mentioned technology. I, uh, in her view, it really comes down to providing a better and supportive environment for teachers, uh, or at least that's my interpretation. Um, can you describe for us your sense, and you have a little bit already, your sense of the role of technology to play here, and um, and and would you um, would you counter Linda Darling Hammond's sort of lack of discussion of technology with a, um, a statement that that it's important in a certain kind of way? 
Well, thanks a lot for asking that question, Steve, because now I get the opportunity to probably isolate everyone in this room except for maybe one or two people. Um, and, and of course, most that aren't paying attention, it doesn't really matter. You will be, you know, those of you that are catching that game, uh, that's on, uh, I think, the Colts uh, today. So anyway, uh, my view is, I mean, I often hear uh, this viewpoint that says technology uh, isn't the key thing. Uh, it's the pedagogy. Teaching and learning are the key things. It's not the technology. And, and I think it's a lovely statement that has all the merits of a great statement with the exception of being true. So technology whether we like it or not, is always the dominant partner in the relationship. And we can say idealistically that's wrong. Uh, we can say that uh, it's incorrect uh, socially to have that kind of a viewpoint. But, I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Technology is the dominant partner in any relationship that it's a part of. And it only makes sense, I'll, I'll go back a little bit to the previous reference to Jacques Ellul, which is that technique the reducing of activities and procedures to steps is a dominating force in all sectors of society and has actually been for a very long period of time. What we can duplicate and what we can scale is what we will duplicate and scale. Now, that's why you, you know, we have our Walmarts and we have McDonald's and we have whatever else because they're, they're capable of creating a technique that permits their duplication and permits some degree of sort of uh, homogeneity across the entire system. So going back to this uh, view then of, you know, for those of us here in this session, and, and some of you are right now saying, wow, you know, this George guy is a jerk. Uh, I don't even like him anymore. Maybe he didn't like me at the start, so uh, we might not have made much progress either way. But think of it for just a second. You're right now in a session here in Illuminate, uh, which is obviously uh, a technology. You're sitting in front of a computer, which is obviously a technology. None of you would have been able to have this conversation today if, it wasn't for technology. And when you leave this session, some of you will go on to Gmail and read your mail, and some of you will go to your microwave and, I don't know, warm up something that is edible, and the list goes on. So this influence of technology is so pervasive that we have a tendency to overlook its impact. And, so, and I'm not saying, hey, it's wonderful that technology is the dominant player. Uh, I'm not uh, making that assertion at all. Uh, I'm saying it just is. And we have to, by focusing on what technology actually is and does, we have to highlight those hidden assumptions and the hidden elements of influence so we can understand what happens. You know, if we bring this into our classroom, rather than saying, oh, it's the technology, I control it. No, you, that technology, as an LMS does, as a learning management system does, it will influence how you'll be teaching in a year's time once it's been mandated. So um, I guess I'll stop here on that because um, I think that emphasis and my constant urge to declare that technology is not neutral is that uh, it embeds an ideology of an era. Uh, the, the choices of your iPhone, someone made those decisions for you. Even Android, which we say is a more open device, there's choices made that you can't make. It determines what you're able to do. It will determine your actions. It will determine your socialization to some degree. So the problem for me is when someone you know, sweeps all of the ideology that's inherent within technology under the table and says, you know, it's not really the technology, it's the learning. Uh, my issue with that is, you know, it's a Trojan horse experience. I would much rather know the ideology and the influence of the technology I'm bringing into my classrooms rather than to assume 
that it's uh, neutral and happily pleasant and won't have any negative impact. Anyway, I'll, I'll stop there because I feel like I just ranted. I, I don't think you did, and I think that it's a, it's a wonderfully nuanced topic, um, and it, it, it needs to involve both viewpoints because clearly just throwing technology into a classroom doesn't do anything. Um, but at the same time, uh, it it's so significantly uh, changes the nature of what takes place, uh, you know, that in many ways I, I think uh, it's, it's reopening doors to previous pedagogies that are, are allowing people to think and, and act in education in ways that they've wanted to for a long time and weren't able to before. But we need to move to Q&A because this is an audience that's going to want Q&A. Um, I want to ask one quick question for me before we go. But if you have a question for George, you can raise your hand by using the hand with the green arrow. Uh, you can also put a question in the chat. And if you've put a question in the chat and I've missed it, please post it again. Uh, I haven't been tracking them or, or taking them. OK, so before we give Theo the mic, George, um, uh, you've mentioned uh, Jacques Ellul. Are there other people you think we should be listening to carefully who maybe aren't getting the attention they should? Um, well, I think it's difficult in, you know, really to say some of the, the voices we should read uh, or follow. I mean, certainly uh, I, I enjoy any contrarian thinker um, just for the sake of, you know, if everyone's talking technology is wonderful, I want to hear someone who says technology sucks. If everyone's saying technology sucks, I want to read someone who says technology uh, is wonderful. So I don't know if I would necessarily highlight a particular author, but perhaps emphasize a particular mindset. And, and it's something a question I frequently ask when dealing with educators or faculty members is, you know, who are you reading these days that's really irritating you? Uh, because that irritation needs to be there because we can start to become quite fanatical if we don't understand what the contrary perspectives are. Um, but definitely there, there are, are, you know, many, you know, from Neil Postman, uh, depending on how radical you, you know, you wish to go, I find Paul Freire, uh, you know, with his Pedagogy of the Press was, uh, was a, you know, definitely is, is a book worth exploring even if you disagree with it. Ivan Illich, uh, you know, Deschooling Society, I mean, that's that's a, a very prominent book, and he, you know, even Freire found him uh, to be a bit too aggressive as well. That uh, were a bit on the, uh, you know, the loony side of, of the process. But, you know, there are many that are out there, but the key emphasis is whatever your knowledge perspective is, you should be reading in relation to your knowledge perspective, which means, you know, having a combination of contrary voices, having a, a mix of academic versus popular resources. You know, that's critical. So it's difficult to say to one person, like I did before, uh, you know, read, uh, read um, you know, Jacques Ellul. But generally, it's about finding reading that's in relation to what you currently know and, and your current understanding. Okay, that's good. And there have been some suggestions in the chat. I've wondered if there would be some way to take uh, this environment and go through some of the books that would really prompt discussion, like Elitra Frere or Dewey, uh, and in some form, not have a live guest, but you know, have a discussion about uh, these sort of particular classics or books that would generate conversations in education. If anybody has an idea, please feel free to email me about that. So Theo, I'm giving you the mic. You can turn it on by there. The lower, there you go. Uh, yeah, George, uh, this has been a delight. Um, and uh, it's great to have the back and forth. When I think of your work on uh, connectivism, I think of the word synergy. Um, have you or anybody else put those two together that when there is good connective 
uh, energy, that's when you get what we call synergy. Uh, well, you know, I, this will sound a little bit, uh, and I try not to address this too much because it's difficult to a thought process, but I haven't refined enough in my own mind. But there is, I think, a degree, for lack of a better term, uh, I would call it resonance. You know, what is it that when I'm sitting in the classroom with a group of uh, other educators and someone makes a point and suddenly, you know, you know, just things fire off in my head. And some call it, you know, this, lat this notion of Latin semantic or latent semantic analysis where, uh, you know, sometimes one piece of information literally lights up all kinds of new connections in our head. And that one I would state is something along the lines of knowledge resonance, which is when we get a new idea, uh, you know, will it connect to us or not? Let's say I'm, you know, Democrat or let's say I'm Republican. I mean, pick whoever in the American context. And what is it that causes one speaker to resonate with me? You know, why would someone like Rush Limbaugh or why would someone like, uh, you know, Stephen Colbert? Uh, you know, these are the kinds of questions that are worth emphasizing because I think there's more to it than just personal like and personal appeal. I think it's heavily due, you're using the word synergy, but the same holds true in learning. I think there are elements at which a certain level of conceptual development will make it possible for us to interact with new ideas that will then in turn resonate and amplify the existing knowledge within the network that we have. But it's difficult to uh, explain beyond that. I mean, some people have used the illustration of fireflies that synchronize and eventually end up blinking together at the same time. And that's not 100% what I mean because I'm emphasizing uh, something that doesn't just synchronized, but that there's a degree of resonance that produces an amplification of knowledge. Great. Okay, Jakes, I'm giving you, uh, well, Theo, I'm going to give you the mic again in case there was a follow-up. You've raised yeah, your hand thanks, again. Yeah, thanks, Steve, because I didn't, yeah, thanks. I didn't mean synergy, I, and again, that's, you know, semantics in terms. Um, synergy is when the combined energy of a group is more than the sum of all the individual energy. In other words, we don't get to a certain place unless we've, we've connected together and that connecting creates something that's beyond what we would do individually. And that's what I mean by synergy is that something greater than the sum it comes out. Uh, so resonance, yeah, we have to have resonance in order to have synergy, but synergy doesn't mean synchronized as much as it means something greater coming out from a whole than the sum of parts. So the, George isn't taking the mic, but I'm going to take mine just for a second. And Theo, my brother's name is Andrew Hargadon, and he's at University of California, Davis, and he, his specialty is innovation. And he would say that's innovation, and I know he's really interested in this topic. Okay, Jakes, I'm giving you the mic. Everybody be ready. Hi, George. Um, you've, been, you've mentioned um, LMSs tonight a couple times in your, in your talk, and one of the things I'm really intrigued by when I look at your work is, is um, when you're talking about, and you're doing some of this with Stephen Downs, I understand, you know, when you're talking about the shift from a place which might be represented by georgesiemens.com or something like that to more of a, a personal space which might be twitter.com slash georgesiemens. Uh, you know, I'm really intrigued by by the idea of, of students having the capability to pick and choose their um, element they want to create their ideas in, and the representations of understanding, and that that's collected by metadata. I think that's where your classes are going. I've got two questions for you. Um, 
the shift that, that that might bring about, is that possible in, in high schools? That's the first thing. And the second thing I'd like maybe to talk about is uh, how's that going and how's that working out? And is it really, uh, are you able to aggregate content through metadata from all these different places and have it make sense for uh, learning? Uh, some great questions, uh, and I'll try and do my best to partly address it. Uh, first of all, you know, the question is this notion of, you know, when we've shifted from one domain name, namely place-based, right, that, you know, this is a, you know, georgesemus.com versus now, and I've used the term in the past that we've moved from, you know, dot to slash, uh, and that this, this transition where instead of being confined to, let's say, that domain name, now our identities are distributed, we're all over the web, and we, we don't have a place now. You can't go and say, well, you know, let's look up, I don't know, pick someone, you know, and look them up in the Encyclopedia Britannica. You know, to understand someone today, to understand Steve Hargadon or those of you that decided to Google someone in this room or, you know, Googled me before you know, to see if you wanted to suffer through a session, you probably found, oh, you know, that's a pain. You know, I've got to read X number of resources and I've got to try and figure out this and that. And where is he with? You know, he, I thought he was at University of Manitoba. Now he's at Athabasca University. And what's his role? And, and there's this constant mess of data. So my identity is very much distributed. Now, in fairness, all of the learning that your students do in a classroom is very much distributed too. The problem isn't, is this even possible in high school? Because they're doing it already, so it very much is possible. The real question for me is, why is the system not taking advantage of that distributed identity, those distributed learning activities, learning that happens outside of classrooms, learning that happens through informal means? Why is the existing education system failing to take advantage of some of those things? So it's because students are doing it continually and, and in an ongoing fashion. Now, of course, there's a lot of junk in that equation as well, right? There's a lot of idle chatter and, you know, the silly things that teenagers do. But I do think that the high school model of interacting in distributed means and some sense of bringing these pieces together is possible. Now, I, I mentioned this before, but I'll drop this in again. It's a, a course that I'm doing with uh, Dave Cormier, Stephen Downs, and Rita Kopp on personal learning environments, networks, and knowledge. It's, it's an open course. It starts September uh, 13th, I think, if you're interested. It'll give you a little bit of a sense what that's like. But if you want a good example of what's possible now, uh, start to look at things such as uh, anything that's with social uh, web monitoring uh, or social media monitoring. And they're doing a good job with this already. Google does it every day. If you want an example of what is this going to look like, take a look at Google. Uh, take a look at Hunch. There's another example of an organization or you know, a company, if you will, that's tried to uh, make search more intelligent. So the reality is making sense of distributed system or information in distributed systems is already very developed. It just hasn't been applied much to education. So the challenge here, and I really do think this is a core issue for educators to face and to grapple with, how do we make sense, or no, let me try that again, how do we achieve an intended outcome through a distributed system? The reality is the distributed system is in play already, and it's growing in prominence in all areas of our lives. The question becomes, how can we achieve the particular aim of an education system, namely to produce a particular byproduct in a learner, uh, to achieve a particular level of understanding in an individual or in a system as a whole? How do we do that through a system that we no longer have exclusive control over? 
but we're not the only ones facing this. I mean, Pepsi is trying to decide, you know, gee, it used to be great when we could get a Super Bowl commercial, put somebody in a, in a bikini or set someone's hair on fire, and, and boom, we've got a you know, commercial and people will, will consume our product. Well, today, Pepsi has to, as, as does any organization, can't broadcast that way anymore. Uh, in a sense, we've shrunk conversations down. I hate to say this term again, but we've shrunk them down to connections, and as a byproduct of that, there's a lot more need for this fluctuating and continual exchange, which requires monitoring and active engagement and involvement in it. So I'm not sure if that quite gets at, at your question, but I, I, just, I just want to emphasize that, yes, the systems are there. What we haven't managed to do yet, and is a challenge for educators to answer, is how do we get that clear outcome through these distributed systems that are there already? Now, I'll give you one illustration of, uh, you know, potentially you may be interested in is a conference that we're doing in Banff this next year on um, learning analytics. And in fact, I think I've got a blog post on here somewhere. Let me just see if I can get a browser. Um, this blog post covers a little bit of what I mean with that because really that's what the emphasis point is, is uh, rethinking relationships with curriculum and relationships with, relationships with learners that include the advances that technology or the affordances that technology enables. Uh, hi there. I'll just jump in uh, with my question. I see the mic is um, given. Um, my question is this. Regarding information in uh, distributed systems, um, dominant discourses and creating new discourses in uh, distributed systems. My question is, do you see, um, George, that there is any value to disconnection or strategic disconnection from information systems in terms of building new knowledge? Thanks. Well, there's a few things there. I just want to throw out two quotes. Um, well, quotes that I've dramatically abused because I forget where exactly they were from. Um, one statement was recently that if you wish to grow in knowledge, add something every day. If you wish to grow in wisdom, delete something every day. So obviously, you know, in that sense, if you agree with little soundbite phrases, yeah, there is value in disconnection. I remember reading a text as well. Uh, it was called The Physiology of Truth. And one of the concepts that the author made was that all learning is elimination. So, it, and that's why I've started to emphasize when it comes to learning and, and networks and personal learning environments, we need to spend as much time emphasizing what are we deleting? You know, what are we, it's not just about growing our networks, it's also about pruning. Because at the end of the day, anyone can acquire information. And this is why writing is such a pain in the butt. And this is why learning is such a cumbersome task sometimes because, you know, you have these options on the table in front of you, whether you're trying to, you know, choose uh, a particular uh, politician to vote for or whether you're trying to decide which school system to send your children to. And in order, you know, we can't let them all sit there equally. We have to make a decision on it, and there is energy that's re that, that needs to be exerted that allows us to make that right choice. So very much so, pruning and deletion and disconnecting can be a very healthy thing. Okay, so we probably have time for one or two more questions. Again, if you've placed it in the chat and I haven't noticed it, please post it again so that, um, that it's there. George, while we're waiting for a question, can you kind of give us a vision of your sense of the new role of the teacher? I, I know you've written about that. Well, I, I think in my eyes, the new role of the teacher is uh, strongly tied to what goes on with learning analytics. And if, if you want to focus on, you know, what's the 
next significant trend in education. It, it will, in some sense or another, be tied, I think, to analytics, which is beginning to understand, you know, what is it that we're doing around uh, our interaction in the classroom? You know, which students are talking to each other? What's the impact of those conversations? Uh, what are they doing online in terms of the information exchange? So I think analytics really is a critical element in that regard. But what analytics does is it provides us a means to personalize a learner uh, learner's experience. It also allows us uh, to perform interventions because much like in social settings, you know, we signal what we're going to do. We signal if we like someone well before we, you know, we ever ask them out or whatever it is that we do. Uh, so signaling and learning exists as well. So we broadcast, our students broadcast failures before they actually fail. It's not they suddenly wake up and they fail. There's a pattern of behavior that can often give us a good indication. So I think the role of the educator, if we say, what does technology do well? And I would say technology does everything routine-wise well. And so we can bypass that and say, great. Now let's take attention on what the teacher does. And I think the educator's role is one of uh, the, the, uh, the motivational or the soft elements. Technology can do the hard uh, stuff that can be duplicated again and again. The human experience has to do that soft stuff, those the motivational elements, the emotional elements, the encouraging uh, people to connect to certain individuals that may be relevant based on their existing knowledge. It can also be about getting learners to think critically about who are they connected to and why. And if we look at their learning network and we suddenly realize, wow, you know, you're reading a lot of people who have liberal views, but you're not reading anyone who has a conservative view. Well, you know, if our society has only liberals, that's great, but our society doesn't. So now you're going to need to start reading some people who have conservative views and vice versa. So this list or this approach continually uh, develops. So anyway, I'll leave it there because I know we've got to work through another question. I actually don't see another question unless I've missed one. We are, we've got time for a final one. I'll go to our my final slides here. Um, while we're waiting for that final question, I'm going to clap for George. George, I feel like we have had a good overview of George Siemens. And uh, why don't you put your uh, any links you'd like in there for people to go to. And we're going to give Chris the final word here as I post the upcoming sessions. Go ahead, Chris. To turn your mic on, Chris, you click the lower large icon of a microphone, lower left side of your screen. Oh, maybe Chris was clapping. and raised his hand accidentally. Okay, so um, uh, George, I'm going to put that in with a, actually I'm going to pull it up on the web tour and put uh, the link in so that people can see this. Really appreciate your coming on tonight. Uh, great to get to know you a little. Here's the site, I hope. I don't know if anybody's seeing that yet, because I am not, unfortunately. But we'll put the link in the chat. Okay, George, so you get the final word. I don't have much else to say. Uh, thanks, everyone, for uh, popping in and certainly enjoyed the questions. Obviously, a lot of them didn't get addressed, and my apologies on that. But again, appreciate you taking an hour of your time to uh, join in. Thanks so yeah. much. Go ahead, and George. I should say as well, uh, thanks, Steve, for the invite, and certainly enjoyed the chat. Thank you, George, for coming. Most appreciated. Thanks for those of you who have attended. Really fun. Uh, like I said earlier, like finding a more intelligent, articulate old friend, uh, George Siemens, tonight on the future of education. Have a great night, everybody, or a day, depending on where you are in the world, and we'll talk to you later.